0: Good morning, good morning. This is Law of the Land with Gloria, J. Brown Marshall on WBAI 99.5 FM, org. There is a lot of news and we are still alive to hear it. That is a miracle, it's a wondrous thing and we shall rejoice in life. Even in small ways in our our little places, wherever we may be, or our mansions and our studio apartments, our farms, our homes, however we make our homes, we are alive to be at home. And I have more empathy, more sympathy than ever before for those people in solitary confinement. We are confined to our own homes. We are confined in ways that allow us some privilege to go to grocery stores or walk around the block, whether or not we're fully um, contained in our masks and shields and gloves. And those people who are incarcerated, who are now under the control of others, their ability to access protection, whatever that protection may be, in places that are poorly ventilated where there is rampant disease even on good days before a pandemic you had very high rates of of all different types of of diseases within the incarcerated atmospheres in addition to secondhand smoke so much is happening there i want us to think about the fact that when people are incarcerated those who have actually committed the crime and been fairly incarcerated and we know that this country that has 5% of the world's population holds 25% of the incarcerated population, that we have the highest number of incarcerated women women in the world. This country, United States of America, has the highest rate of incarcerated women. And we need to know that on law of the land, yes, we're here to empower, but also to inform. And we could be the best citizens in the world. We could be people who hold this country near and dear, but we don't need to be foolish. And to be foolish is to cover our eyes to what is evident. And that's why I enjoy talking about law. Law didn't fall out of the sky. Law is what it is because human beings created it. And usually... Most often, and I would say pretty much all the time, it's human beings with a great deal of power incorporating, instituting, and finding ways to prevent others from gaining power while holding on to power themselves. And that means they look to the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable as targets. And we talk about the incarcerated. You may say, well, they did these horrible crimes, some of them. Some of them just did what they had to do. Some of them are uh, I would say insufficiently insufficiently found guilty, but because they didn't have the means, as I say too often, you don't find too many rich people in prison, and yet, as we see with these uh, pardons that are given out at the end of each presidential term, especially this one, the pardons that are given out are to the wealthy. Why aren't they behind bars? what prisons are they in? I had a chance when I was a law clerk, and I was a law clerk for a state court judge, and I was a law clerk for a federal trial court judge. And um, both times I had the opportunity to visit prisons, whether or not they were the local state jails or the federal prisons. And, yes, they really exist. Those country club prisons, I was there. I saw them. One prison, especially the one in Pennsylvania and many people in Pennsylvania are actually listening to this program know that that country club prison is called that because they don't have the same harsh conditions. They have bunk beds. They have something like um, a military environment. And this prison is next to the golf course and the joke they have. And this is true. You can see the golf course from this prison where the white collar criminals go. And they say, oh, the what's so terrible? The punishment is that we have to watch people play bad golf all day long. That was the joke in that prison. So we do know that the criminal justice system is rigged. If we want to talk about what's rigged, it's rigged against the poor, it's rigged against people of color. And then whatever crime that might have been committed, it was not meant to be a pandemic death sentence. And too often that's what it is. The criminal justice system is a system that has never been reformed. We have reformed our educational system in a way with starting in nineteen fifty four, we might say, with Brown versus Board of Education, and actually well before that there have been challenges to the criminal to our um, educational system, but um, nothing but the criminal justice system, even though we had over five thousand people lynched in this country, bor- burned alive, torn to pieces, hanged, but there was no um, reforming of the criminal justice system. But with Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, we had reforms in the educational system, national reforms I'm talking about, not this piecemeal jurisdictional reform, national reform with Brown versus Board of Education through the Supreme Court. Oh, we had national reform in, in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, national reform not the piecemeal employment discrimination reform, national reform. And so we had the creation of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. We had ways in which we could combat discrimination in employment in other aspects of life with the 1964 Civil Rights Act. We had national reform of our voting rights with the 1965 Voting Rights Act. That's not the uh, reform here and there. No, we had actual amendment to the Constitution. That got rid of poll taxes. We had national reform in housing with the 1968 Fair Housing Act, national reform with the places people could live. Did it change everything? No. But it wasn't this piecemeal lawsuit by lawsuit. And what without national reform? When it comes to our criminal justice system, we are going to continue to have inequalities. We're going to continue to have the types of of ways in which the burdens are going to be borne by the poor and by people of color. And those people, especially those who are in control of the populations and rural communities that allow those populations to be counted within the population of, of that county, giving more state and federal and local resources financial resources to that county that would not have it but for the population growth that comes with the prison and the whole communities that are now part of that prison population because the life what the prison guards the life of the the schools and the teachers who are teaching the children of the incarcerated the the stores and all the other Uh, Peripheral businesses that are created to sustain those who are working within the prison. There are three to four to five to six degrees of commerce based on those prisons and those communities. And it's generational. We have prison wardens who are the third generation of prison wardens. Uh, We have people who are um, not just basing their livelihoods, but they they have to plan how long these prisons are going to be in place. And their middle class lifestyles are based on the prisons. So all of these things are taking place within our country. We cannot turn a blind eye and we cannot say that those people are so horrendous that they deserve to die by covid because they are incarcerated. What are we going to do as we try to protect ourselves here in the outside where someone like me is indoors all day except for the 20, 40 minutes I I take each day to stretch my legs, walk around the block, go to the store, run errands, and then come back in under my own self-imposed isolation? How about those people who cannot get away from the disease at all? We need to think about that. And so my focus is on two things for this show. One is the Electoral College. But first, I want to talk about a case I think is very important for us. Very important because it could have deep ramifications for other aspects of the criminal justice system. And that case is Tanzania versus Tanvir, Tanzin versus Tanvir. And this is a case that was brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights. And what I'm going to talk to you about, and I I think it's something that on on one hand you might find um, is happening behind the scenes that you would have thought would have made national news, but it didn't because of what's going on with the pandemic and because we have this delusional megalomaniac in the White House um, who is using all forces of demonic behavior to maintain and, uh, and, uh, his arguments that the U.S. Supreme Court has batted down regarding um, election fraud, but also um, that is undermining our democratic principles at its core. And the 100 um, Republican members of the House who have decided to follow suit. And we're going to talk about that a little later in this program, but first I want to talk about this case because this case did not get the attention it deserves. And this is a December 10th ruling that was unanimous, except for um, Amy Coney Barrett, who did not hear the oral argument in the case, and therefore she could not rule on it. And that's how the Supreme Court works. Um, She was not on the court at the time when the argument took place in October. But in this case, a unanimous ruling, which is amazing, especially given the topic here. This is a topic that involves Muslims muslims who have been spied on by our government and once they were spied on and we know this was um, a case in new jersey where we had um muslims spied on in new jersey and that case went up but this one is under the religious freedom restoration act of 1993 that has been stretched and pounded in so many different ways and and i will have a show on that act by itself because it's been used in so many different cases But in this particular case, we have um, members of the Muslim community. Uh, Muhammad Tanvir is the lead um, plaintiff here. And these are practicing Muslims who claim that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, place them on the no-fly list. Now, the no-fly list is a list that says that you cannot board an airplane, that you are a danger to society, and therefore um, the no-fly list says that there is no plane you can get on in this country. So... The right to travel, as we know from the case of Paul Robeson, if you have a chance to to um, read more about that case, the, this issue about travel, that we have a fundamental right to travel. That's why we're able to pick up and go to another part of the country or leave this country and go to another country. Um, we have a right, fundamental right to travel. Now, the right to travel is not written in the Constitution, but it's been one that um, has been created, as a fundamental right for us to be able to travel. And it's an international human right to be able to travel. However, one can be prohibited from traveling if that travel is seen as a risk to the welfare and being of other individuals or the country. That's why we have a no-fly list. And so these practicing Muslims were approached by the Federal Bureau of Investigation agents, and asked to spy on other Muslims. And when they said no, when they told the FBI agents they would not spy on other Muslims, they were placed on the no-fly list and seen as a danger. I want to also reference here the uh, the case of Korematsu versus United States. And this, of course, as you know, was the case out of World War II, in which Fred Korematsu and many Japanese um, Americans were uh, put in internment camps during World War II out of this fear that they would be an, a danger. There had been no case against them except they were seen as disloyal. And so the federal government has often, without any litigation at all, without any criminal conviction, put people on certain lists or detained them or treated them in a certain way out of a fear of the possibility of some type of harm against other Americans or against the government itself. And so this no-fly list is one that was used um, to to seemingly protect the country. However, it was found later that they were put on the no-fly list. These particular um, uh, uh, plaintiffs were put on the no-fly list. Uh, Muhammad Tanvir, as I said, being the lead um, party here because they refused to spy on other Muslims. And it was a part of retaliation because they would not act as informants against their religious communities. And they sued the agents now, here is another part of this. There's so many layers to this. The other part is they sued the agents under RIFRA, the, the act I, I mentioned, Religious Freedom Act. They sued them in their individual capacities for money damages because the retaliation against them, putting them on this no-fly list, cost them substantial sums of money. And of course, a psychological sense of the the FBI has is now um, painting them as an enemy to this country. But they lost uh, the money spent on airline tickets. They lost the job opportunities. And they were um, in this suit now against the Department of Homeland Security, who was that remember they're also in this because the Department of Homeland Security, FBI, all these people are seeing these Muslims as a as a danger to the country, and this case went before the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court found in favor of the Muslim parties here, in favor of Tanvir. I want you to hear from Tanvir. We have a a a a, 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 a very short um, um, audio of his experience in this, and I want you to hear this. And as I said, this is a, a bra- ga- groundbreaking case, groundbreaking. And I'm gonna give you another side of this and tell you why this can extend well beyond this particular case into our uh, criminal justice system and other aspects, but we're gonna hear this just right now.
1: My name is Muhammad Tanvir, and I live in uh, Archdale, North Carolina. When Tenzin come to my my store, they said, we need to take you to the Manhattan. We are giving you offer, you know, to work with us as the informer. I said, I want to go with you guys. They said, we'll arrest you. I said, OK, my lawyer will talk to you. They put me on no-fly list. I try to travel from uh, Atlanta to New York. And that time, when I go to Atlanta airport, they said, you cannot fly. I call Tenzin. He said, oh, last time you don't want to talk to us. That's why it happened. And I take bus from Atlanta to New York. It takes me two days. I was very scared, you know, I cannot travel. I was on no-fly list for four years. It feels like you don't have, like, a soil in your body. You didn't do anything, and it happened with you for nothing. Inshallah, God will help us. We are on the right path. That's why I trust in God. I'm very hopeful for our community, for all the Muslim, and for everyone who lives in America. Yes,
0: Inshallah. And... Here we have now a U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Tenzin v. Tanvir and what we find in this case, a unanimous decision except for Justice Barrett, written by none other than um, Justice Thomas, that not only were the rights of these individual Muslim parties Violated, but the FBI agents can be sued for money damages in their individual capacities. Remember, most of these lawsuits, especially against the police officers, have been against the actual government, the city, we, the taxpayers, have been paying for the brutality of police officers. We, the taxpayers, have been paying for governmental violations, many of which the governmental agents knew they were doing at the time, as in this case. So two major things are happening here. And you can read more about it on the the, uh, website for the Center for Constitutional Rights you need to know about this case, about the retaliation that exists. And as I said, let's not turn a blind eye to what is evident here that this retaliation exists in this country, retaliations on different levels against people who would not be informants, against their own communities. You think this is out of some spy movie. It's not. This is real. You can go to the U.S. Supreme Court website and read about the case itself. But also the fact that these instances are real and that there is a remedy and that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 has language in it that allows for the individual FBI agents to be sued for money damages, this is a huge step. This is huge. In law, it's also, at last, some form of weapon, tool, provision that can be used to stop these government agents from using the power of their positions to crush the poor, to crush people of color, to crush people that they believe have, in some way, risen up against their sense of the way this country is supposed to be run, whether or not it's a sense of white supremacy, uh, 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 the sense of Christian supremacy, a sense that you know they are the watchdogs to maintain the status quo, and they're not going to allow people to get out of their so-called place. I want to um, raise that, and I and I wanted to just do a, a news break. That is breaking news that should have received attention, um, but for the horrendous um, numbers here that are taking place because of the pandemic, it did not. And as I said before, the petulant child uh, with a gun in the White House who is um, uh, diabolically holding this nation hostage which is what's going on, and his followers of cult followers, C-U-L-T cult followers, who want to continue to believe in him because he is uh, such a, a, a stark representation of uh, patriarchy and white superiority in their own mind. Um, I want to turn to the Electoral College. Um, the Electoral College has been in the news. Of course, there was a vote voted Electoral College. Um, Yesterday on Monday. So, um, yes, I need this to be gone. Yes. Uh, Many of us who danced in the street, I did not dance in the street because I always thought that he said um, that he being Donald Trump that he was not leaving. He said that many times leading into the um, national election. And we see that um, he is true to his warped word. And so during a time period in which we have global deaths at over um, 1,600,000 globally, we have over 72 million cases of coronavirus around the world. And in the United States, we lead... The world with coronaviruses um, at 16 million cases, over 16 million cases of COVID and over 300,000 deaths. And coronavirus is the leading cause of death in this country right now. And why are we now focused on still this man who won't leave the White House, repugnant to democracy? And these people claim to be patriots, and I still don't understand this claim of patriotism. This claim, like, it's just, to me, it's, it's, it's sinful to claim to be a patriot and, and hang on to dictators, claim to be a patriot and cling to Vladimir Putin's um, need to undermine this country. What kind of mental illness is this? I have no idea, but I do know. That this is how dictatorships rise and whatever Donald Trump was not able to undermine, there will be followers of his who come later to undermine more. We're on a path that is one that was born in what was uh, part of the original sins of this country in the first place and it will continue to show itself until we have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, until we come face to face with what this nation has done to other people and giving rise and giving birth to continued racism, the riots that took place in Washington, D.C. with people getting stabbed by people who are followers of white supremacy. Where are the arrests? As we see loaded weapons going into state capitals, where are the arrests? Black people are being gunned down for nothing Where are the arrests of these white men and women who don't wear masks, therefore infecting other people and then want to bleed out our medical systems with their bad choices? Where are the arrests by law enforcement? And of course, we know that the majority that of of police unions that did make their 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 minds known, um, supported Donald Trump. So what protections do we have for people of color? What protections do we have in this country at all? That's another um, issue and question that I'm going to be addressing um, in, a, in another show. But after this musical break, we're going to focus on the Electoral College. You've heard a lot about it, and I've written about it as well. And so... Um, I think this next song um, really kind of sums up a, a lot of what I have to say about this administration and the fact that because President Barack Obama had two terms, I guess um, this, this need for, for Donald Trump to have two terms means more to him than this country's future. But I think it's always been about his ego. And for that, we really need to say at some point, adieu, farewell, and please um, get the heck out. I'll be right back. And we know that was hit the road, Jack, by Ray Charles. And I think that summed up the feeling for many people. Please play it off to remind yourself that there shall be an end to this. Um, Of course, because it's always creeping underneath the surface of America, we will see other pimples and blemishes pop up. I am concerned about um, how we will protect ourselves against people who are well armed. And under um, surveillance and people in law enforcement who seem to refuse to actually um, incarcerate these people, to arrest them, to hold them accountable. I, I, I find this amazing for those, once again, who believe in law and order, as they say. But they only believe in law when it comes to people of color. And there's only order when it comes to the status quo. But let's see what the Constitution says about the Electoral College. And um, the article that I I wrote about this was Electoral College Drama Ahead, Pence Must Announce, Biden Wins. Now, I, I want us to delve into the Electoral College and what it was meant to do and why it was meant to do it. And for one thing, the Electoral College is not a college. Is a group of political leaders formed to balance the popular vote of the people and the framers of the Constitution didn't quite trust the power of regular people to elect the leaders of the country. And did not respect, of course, the sense that these regular people who were immigrants who were um poorly educated, if educated at all, they did not want them to have the power to elect the commander-in-chief. There was a sense that the poor and the undereducated are emotional beings like children, where you know women were seen as children, people of color as children, and didn't have the developed mind to actually uh, fully elect the leaders of the country. And so they wanted the Senate and the, um, the electors, groups of political selected people, to actually make these decisions. So you had a sense of contribution to your country by um, voting in the popular vote, but there was this balance. And there were some people in 1787, when the Article Two provisions about the Electoral College were put in place, who actually thought, we should just have the, um, the Senate and other members of this select Electoral College um, select everybody in the federal high leadership. And so it was determined that we would balance this out. We would have a popular vote, but we'd also have this thing called the Electoral College. Um, But in 1804, and remember, um, the Constitution was drafted in 1787, and it was ratified in 1789. So 1804, we're still dealing with a very young country. There was the 12th Amendment that was ratified, and we know that the the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791. And so um, there are very few amendments to the Constitution. Most of them started in the earlier years, and they saw that um, having the Electoral College select all of these higher-level people after the popular vote was not working. So they decided that there would only be the Electoral College is power triggered for the president and vice president and so um, what's also interesting is that the president and the vice president are elected separately initially in the Constitution and this is you can read it yourself and I hope you do the Constitution is not that long a document but I think it's helpful when we talk about it the initially the president was the person who received the most votes And the vice president was the person who received the second highest vote number. Can you imagine this? They could be of separate parties, different parties. But that's the way they initially uh, pictured the president and vice president. Of course, they found very early on that that's unworkable. I mean, those same... patriots, will say, um, even though that word has been tainted so many times by such supremacist um, notions. Um, But those initial soldiers, those people who led the fight against England during the Revolutionary War, came to despise each other later on. Um, As early as uh, in the early 1800s, Thomas Jefferson, um, John Adams, James Madison, all became virulent enemies. And they booed George Washington in his second term. They had really, become, you know, a a lot of rabble rousing, a lot of of animosity, because when you have a theory of a nation, a theory of a democracy, a theory of how a country should run, and that's what the Constitution was in 1787, um, it was created in in many ways um, from the Articles of Confederation, because the Articles of Confederation um, did not work. They, they gave each state its power. Each state had its own military, its own currency, its own stamps, its own ability to create treaties. But um, and, and having its own ability to protect itself meant that um, we were only as safe as the weakest military of that state. So of those states, if there was an outside party that wanted to attack, and they would attack, of course, the, the state with the weakest military, and then uh, the country is gone. We had also had uprisings back then. Um, And those uprisings, such as Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts, showed that without a federal government, that was uh, one that could unify the states, that one that could have the military necessary to protect against outside invasions, as well as domestic uprisings, uh, whether or not they be uprisings from those whites or uprisings from Native Americans or people of African descent. but the but the part that was really tricky here with the Electoral College is they thought that not allowing the people to have the final say in the president and allowing the person who received the highest votes to be president and the second highest votes to be vice president would in some way um, uh, placate everyone. And, of course, it was a disaster. You can't have people who have now become enemies after fighting um, shoulder to shoulder um, sit next. They couldn't even sit next to each other. They so despise each other. And so to have that person who's running for president and lose the office of president become vice president was unworkable. And that's how we became um, a system in which we would have the president and vice president run as a slate together. And um, as we look at the electoral system, and we saw that yesterday that each state has its own um, electoral um, count. Each state has been given a certain number of electoral votes based on the number of state. U.S. representatives and senators so that's why each state has a different number because if the state has a larger number such as California and New York a larger number of U.S. representatives then we know they'll have a larger um, number of electoral votes and each state gets two senators and so here we have um, the ability to have um, the number of electors be that total number of the congressional delegation as they call it and that congressional delegation, the delegation of U.S. representatives and senators that are in Congress. And so that number then equals 538. And to get the majority, one needs 270. And there are also some people who have decided by law um, that they are, they call them faithless electors. Um, By law, they are supposed to Uh, give their electoral vote to the person in that state in the presidential election who wins the highest popular vote. And so there's always a concern around that and that the highest popular vote by one vote, perhaps by 50 votes, by 10,000 votes. um, And that's where you have um, Donald Trump's uh, push to continue to undermine the ability of the electors to view the popular vote as a credible vote because he knows if he can chip away at the popular vote so that he wins by even one vote, that he gets the electoral votes from that state. And where he's chipping away is playing on the racism of this country by looking at places like Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Atlanta that have the, the black vote that came out and the black vote, as we've seen since the 1800s, has been able to change the outcome of elections. That's the power. That's why there's voter suppression against the African-American community, because we have a critical mass of the population at 13 to 15 percent. We have a voting power that's been evidenced since black men gained the right to vote in the 18. in in 1870 with the 15th Amendment and voting in the 1800s. The first black U.S. senator was in 1870, Hiram Revels. So during that time period, there were black men in political offices from local offices up to the U.S. Senate, uh, the House of Representatives and the state assemblies, and that powerful black vote has been the target of white supremacists from the time period in which that power was known. So what we have, and, I, and I'll go quickly into it, what we have now is they they call it faithless electors. And so most of the states have a law that says that their electoral votes must go to the presidential and vice presidential candidates. Remember, they vote separately. Um, the electorals vote for the president and vote for the vice president, um, and that's based on uh, what we have established under law, and so in the Constitution, so they were um, asked from outside forces like the White House and and their state parties and other people who have decided to follow this madness um, that that they not certify their electoral votes for um, Joe Biden and. There have been faithless, they're called faithless electors, who break from the tradition, break from the law, and decide they're going to cast their electoral votes for whomever as a protest vote of some sort. And so that's what they were asked to do in this particular instance. Um, But they... Held fast and they cast their electoral votes as they would under other circumstances. Um, they cast it for the presidential and vice presidential candidates receiving the highest number of popular votes in their state. Then they report these votes to Congress, which is what they did um, yesterday. And it's decided that they have to do this on a particular day. And under federal law, and for those people who want to follow the federal law, because we talk about this, but they really give you the federal statutes. The federal law is um, 3 U.S.C. Section 15. And 3 U.S.C. Section 15, U.S. Code, um, Section 15 states that, uh, and I say this in, in, in paraphrasing, that Congress meets in a joint session to count the electoral votes and that the president of the Senate, and the, the president of the Senate is the presiding officer, that president of the Senate is the vice president, so Mike Pence. So under section 16 of that same federal law, the president of the Senate takes the position of speaker of the House. So we have a joint um, session of Congress. This rarely happens where you have the House representatives and the Senate and the senators meet together. The president can call a joint session, um, but it rarely happens that the president calls a joint session. Usually the only time we see a joint session is for the State of the Union address, which also takes place on January 20th. And, And then under Section 18 of that law, the president of the Senate becomes a presiding officer of the Joint Session of Congress to oversee the count so mike pence is supposed to oversee this count and once counted the vice president in this case mike pence announces the next president and vice president of the united states now the concern we have and the concern i actually had somebody express to me as recent as last night is whether or not mike pence is going to do this and i and i want you to know that even during the time period of the case of of bush versus gore and which we had um, the hanging chads in in Florida, and those of you who weren't here or don't know about this infamous, infamous case, we had an issue around the vote count in Florida, and in that case, um, we. Had in, in 2000 for the 2000 election um the the recount was halted by the US Supreme Court as the US Supreme Court determined at one point that they they're going to stop the count and that's why you hear this phrase stop the count that they were going to stop the count and let the count stand with Bush having won Florida and in winning Florida becomes president of the United States at the time, Al Gore was vice president under Bill Clinton. Al Gore was running for president. This is how, um, if you think about how, how ironic this law has worked. Al Gore was running for president against the incumbent, George W. Bush. Now we have the incident with the election around the vote count in Florida. Um, as we pointed out in this law, and I've just explained to you, the sitting vice president, Al Gore, has to oversee the electoral vote count in the joint session of Congress, and Al Gore did this, and the vice president then has to announce the winner. So in January of 2001, in this very heated case in which, you know, and many people believe Al Gore was cheated out of the presidency, um, when Al Gore oversaw the electoral count of of the joint sessions of Congress, he had to announce that George W. Bush was the next President of the United States. And he did so, because that is the law and that is our tradition. And what we'll see is whether or not Mike Pence will have that level of dignity and that level of respect for the rule of law, the role of law, and our U.S. Constitution. And I'd like to thank Miriam. Vincent um, at the Legal Affairs Office at the National Archives for the research that she did and it was very helpful to me in my research because when I go out there for you, my listeners I try to get the very best information I'm not perfect but I really try hard to get the very best information to inform and empower and I hope sometimes inspire you around the Constitution and around law to see it more as some cold thing of one party versus another but the people behind the law and what it means in our lives and the U.S. Supreme Court creates American history and I want to make sure that I bring home that fact so um when we uh, wait for January sixth, and that's when Congress has its electoral count. And this, the time frame that between um, December and January was. You think about this in this time of of eighteen oh four that people had horse and buggy that they had to have time to to count up these these votes. They had to have time to get their tally to Congress, and so that's why we have these this time difference of of over a month between certain events that take place between the national election in November, the electoral college in December, and then the um, overseeing of the electoral count in January, it's because in that time frame, when these laws were put in place, when the Constitution was created, it was a horse and buggy time. And so people needed to have a great deal of time to travel from different parts of the country, if you can imagine, all the way to Washington, D.C. I want to um, have this one last song come up, and then I want to get back to some new nitty-gritty um, WBAI um, information, but one last time, if we could just have a a number of, of, of people to better understand the Electoral College, I, I just think that we're on our way. We don't have civics classes the way we used to. We don't have government classes, but we need to know um, what we're talking about when we're talking about the Constitution. And if I can be helpful, I really, I really appreciate the fact that my WBI listeners are receptive. We'll be right back after this musical break that sums up once again what we need to be focused on going into this next year. Goodbye, please, let this be gone. Let this um, ability to go forward um, um, be a part of this country's future and um, not saying that we should just say goodbye to the past. We need to learn from the past if if not, then history will surely uh, repeat itself.